Radio. Why did Jesus come? A talk by Eileen Lane at the Immaculata Mission School 2014, held at the Sacred Heart Retreat Centre in Croydon, Melbourne. I guess, especially, and you'll see why, given the topic that I'm going to talk to you about, but I think it's probably important for you to recognize that I have a history that I come from, like you guys, I have a story. Um, I wasn't always, you know, up here in front of people speaking, giving talks at mission schools. So I, I wanted to share a little bit about that with you, just so you kind of get where I'm coming from, and so that actually when I am speaking um, on the topic this morning, you might realize that I've also, this applies to my life as well, as much as it does to everyone else's. So um, if you can tell, I have a bit of an accent. I'm from Canada, not from the United States of America. <laughs> Very important. Um, <laughs> I was, my parents are from Ireland, so they're immigrants. Uh, so I guess you could say I grew up in the typical Irish Catholic family, where in many ways, actually, the faith was much more just of a cultural thing and not necessarily something that we sort of owned for ourselves. And so I grew up going to Catholic schools, being kind of involved in the parish, um, but not, not really knowing Jesus, not really knowing uh, who he is and what he's done for me and what he wants to do with me. So typical, I guess typical kind of uh, youth, no major, major dramas other than the fact that we had to move around lots. I moved, I think I went to six different schools or something like that, which was actually pretty traumatic when you're 15 and 16 things. But finally went off to university. Um, I guess you would have said you consider that I was a pretty good girl in a way before, and then went to uni, and I, I definitely got a bit lost. Uh, I was in Montreal, which is a pretty big city, and lots of things to lure you away or to seduce you away. A lot of lies being presented to you about what is true happiness and fulfillment, and I definitely gave in to some of those over the years. Um, but always went to church on Sunday, just... You know, there was something there. Um, wasn't really conscious why, why, why I went. But then 2002 rolled around. I don't know if any of you remember in 2008, the Pope coming to Sydney, World Youth Day. That happened in Toronto in 2002. So I somehow ended up in Toronto at World Youth Day. Was just finishing my undergraduate degree. And I think all of those lies were really like starting to bombard me. And I realized, you know what, I'm not happy. I was. Graduate, I studied engineering, I did really well in it and had offers for master's and PhD and things and apparently had friends and things like that. But, you know, there was just something missing, something big missing. So I did end up at World Youth Day and it was that life-changing um, life experience. For me, it was to discover Christ for the first time in my life, really, and to understand what my faith was actually all about, and um, and to understand that I'm called to be a saint. You know what? Like life hadn't been that challenging for me in many ways before then. But then I was like, that's a real challenge, and that's something that I'll have to work on my whole life. And believe me, yes. And so I had a new horizon, a horizon of trying to be a saint, and that sort of just flipped everything around. And realizing that actually the most important thing is following Christ. So. Not that that necessarily means that you leave your master's and PhD in engineering, but in my case, it did mean that. I, uh, I did finish my master's, but um, ended up just really hearing God calling me to dedicate my whole life to him and to the church, and so I did that. Um, well, it took me about 
a year afterwards, you say, I met my community, which is originally from South America. I met them in the States. And after, I guess, a relatively short time of discernment, I, I realized that God was calling me yeah, to evangelize. And that's what we're about, is to be in the midst of the world evangelizing. So cut a long story short, that's how I ended up in Sydney, because we have a house there. And I've been a few places I've been in the States and England and Peru. And now I'm here. So hopefully I'll be here for a while. Um, but just, yeah, so that was just to give you a bit of an idea of who I am and to see that I've really had my own personal journey too and, and in many ways, many, many ways, I'm still on that journey. I've been reflecting, I guess it's, it's Christmas season, and I was reading the prologue of the Gospel of John, which kind of comes up in the Christmas season. If you, if you haven't read it recently, it's the whole, the word was God, the Word was with God, the Word was God, goes on to say, and the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And isn't that what we're really celebrating at this time of year? The Word, the Word being Jesus, becoming flesh and dwelt, dwelling amongst us, full of grace and truth. And it struck me as I was praying about it, and I was praying about coming here today as well, you know, why in the world did Jesus come? Like, why in the world did he have to come? It's something like we celebrated, oh great, the little baby is so cute, and the love of Jesus, but it's sort of like, why? Why in the world did God have to even come to earth? Um, and I know sometimes we get a general sense of, oh, he had to come to save the world, to save us. Okay, what does that have to do with me then, in my life right now? And I want that to just be a question that you keep at the back of your mind throughout this talk of, you know, why did Jesus come? What did he come to do? Um, I have a question for you guys. Who wants to be happy? Yeah, I want to be happy too. Um, and if I was to ask you how happy you want to be, I'm guessing you're not really going to be able to put any limit to it. And that's because our yearning for happiness is, is, is really is infinite. But then I, you don't have to answer this one, but I want you to ask yourselves in all sincerity, do you think that you're as happy as you could be? Um, think of your, your daily life, your everyday situation. Would I, at least I can say, and I, I don't know if you agree, that there's at times when it seems like we're a bit frustrated, you know, there's, there's, there's this yearning, not quite being fulfilled. Sometimes that's more dramatic, you know, sometimes we really are experiencing that. But even sometimes when things were going on all right, but they're still, you know, well, just doesn't add up. That yearning we have in our everyday uh, existential experience. And I would suggest that many times we actually do feel quite fragile, you know, like quite in conflict, a little bit broken. Um, maybe we feel a little bit like the Israelites, you know, walking in the desert that might have seemed a little bit aimlessly at times, you know, or feeling a little bit like we're walking in darkness even. Um, and I, I think it's fair to say that there's a certain rupture between our dignity, what we're called to, and our current situation, our everyday situation. And I'd say that, yeah, there's the situation often of, of rupture, actually, that we live in. And 
basically, in a nutshell, the reason behind that, I'm just going to go come right out and say it, is because of this little word called sin. And something we hear a lot about, but we don't actually like to talk about it. It's not a really easy thing to talk about. Um, Pascal, this great thinker, would say that certainly nothing offends us more rudely than this doctrine. And yet without this mystery, the most incomprehensible of all, we are incomprehensible to ourselves. So in other words, even though sin doesn't belong to our nature as such, it is a fact about the human person. It's a fact about our reality. It's a, yeah, an anthropological fact, you could say. So it's a very real wound that we all have to deal with. And so if you want to actually understand your everyday life experience, you have to acknowledge and face this fact of sin. And so today, what I want to try to do with you is help you to see how sin is not just some sort of theological concept that you learn about, but is actually something very real, very relevant, something that is very palpable, something that you really, that you really experience. And probably just put a name to something that you already know that you already do experience, but let's really enter into that. Um, and it's not an easy thing to do, so I think we need to be a little bit brave. So to do this, I want to basically go through the Genesis narrative with you, which is something I'm sure you've heard, read many times. Um, but you know, if we want to understand sin, I think we should go back to the beginnings. And before we dive into it, I want to draw your attention to, I guess, the main characters in the Genesis narrative. So we're going to concentrate particularly chapter 3 of Genesis, but looking a little bit chapter 1 to 3, I guess, in general. And in the narrative, we see God, man, and the devil. Now, God, you already know in many ways much about him, and I think you'll continue to learn much about him throughout, throughout the whole mission school. So I won't in a sense, concentrate too much specifically on, on who he is. But just a few words, or I guess as a sort of summary, what can we say about God? God is Trinity, a communion of persons, a communion of love. And this is really important, that concept of God as communion of love. He is our creator, who calls us to a life of happiness and fulfillment. So when God created each one of you, he didn't just think you into existence, which he did. I think it's St. Thomas that talks about that. But he loved you into existence. Um, and as the prophet Jeremiah said, from you know before he even formed us in our mother's womb, he, he knew us. And he created us with a very beautiful plan for each of our lives. As Jeremiah will say, For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. We also have in the narrative man, of course, born out of a superabundance of God's love, this God who is love. And we're the pinnacle of creation, created in the image and likeness of God. We are great in our nature, in our dignity, in our vocation, in our mission. We were created for love, and most importantly, we were created for communion and encounter with God. 
And in the beginning, what we call the state of original justice, man truly was completely oriented towards God. There was a situation of like our relationship with God that was very close and intimate, uh, a relationship of trust, peace reigned, order, wisdom. Men didn't suffer, work was not strenuous, death wasn't a reality. There was true joy, there was true happiness. Now, the third character, the devil, it's funny how we often seem to ignore that character. And there's an old spiritual maxim that says that that's actually Satan's first victory, is to make us forget about his existence. And, and it's really, uh, it can have fatal consequences to forget about his existence, because obviously it means that we become unaware of how he's acting in our lives, and we end up making excuses for the evil that we do, or calling um, something good that is that in fact evil, because we really become desensitized to the reality of sin once we, once we forget about him. And I think it was Pius XII who says that the greatest... Uh, the greatest sin or the greatest disaster of the 20th century was the loss of consciousness of sin. So very much goes in hand in hand with the loss of awareness of the devil. Uh, second, I guess, consequence of forgetting about him is that it reduces our combativity in the spiritual life. So basically, um, we forget that we need to fight. We forget that there's actually somebody out there who wants us to fall. And it's actually really freeing to realize that you have a concrete enemy. That, you, that has already been defeated, that you um, are fighting against. It, to realize that it's not just like the bad that you do isn't only, only a consequence of sort of the, your own interior conflict, but it actually comes from without as well, that there's actually somebody out there tempting you. Um, so because we don't necessarily know that much about him, I just want to spend a minute maybe going through who, who the devil is. So Satan is the head of the angels who rebelled against God. We call him a fallen angel. Um, he's, a cre- he's a creature. He received his being from God as well. But his rejection of God was radical and eternal. And we need to remember also that he's an angel, so he has the powers and qualities as such. Um, and everything about the devil is marked by this option for evil, for turning his back on God. So really, we, we can talk about the devil as almost like the personification of evil. Um, we call him the seducer, the accuser, the father of lies, the tempter. And again, it's really important that we recognize that he is real and operating. So it is true what St. Peter that says that he's prowling around like a lion, looking for someone to devour. So what does he look for ultimately? He's ultimately looking for our eternal ruin. He's jealous of us. He's envious. So he wants to harm God, but he can't, so he goes against us. So he doesn't want us to die in a state of grace, plain and simply. And he knows we have a certain time here on earth. Um, And he acts very intelligently. And we'll look at that when we look at Genesis. But Genesis' story will refer to him as as cunning, as subtle. Um, So he kind of like knows our weak points. He knows where to hit us. He knows our, I guess, almost personal file, you could say. And above all, he's a liar. He works with illusion, deceit. And that's a topic that I really want to focus on this morning. 
to understand how to sin is to give in to a lie, ultimately. Um, and a lie that leads us into a state of darkness and confusion. It's a lie about what will lead us to happiness, what will lead us to true fulfillment. And so we'll see in Genesis how Eve gives in to this, gives in to this lie. So with that, I want to read through chapter 3, part of chapter 3 of Genesis with you, so we can, we'll look at this process of how Adam and Eve fell into sin, but not just to look at it in a sense, almost like from a historical perspective, but this same dynamic that happens here, which I'm going to outline for you, is the same dynamic that we all go through every time that we sin as well. So I'm going to highlight some key points. So I'm just going to start um, chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any other wild creature that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig trees together and made themselves aprons. So the first step, I'm going to divide this into a few different steps of what happens. This process of rupture, we see it starts with what seems like an innocent dialogue. The Satan is making a mere, Satan is making a mere suggestion. She's saying, did God say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? It's just a question. Why is this a problem, you know? He's not directly confronting God, but he is inviting Eve into a dialogue. And it's interesting because, look, he's twisting the truth. He say, did God say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And when we go back to Genesis chapter 2, which I haven't read to you, I'll read to you now, what God says that, here we are, uh, it's, it's verse 9, or 16, sorry. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. So God said to Adam and Eve, You may freely eat of every tree except for the one. And then we have, innocently, the serpent saying, Did, did God say you can't eat of any of the trees? Already you see how subtle he is. Um, but with that question, he's casting a shadow of a doubt. Isn't God exaggerating? So we're called as human beings to encounter, to dialogue, to communion. And so he's sort of, the devil's sort of taking advantage of that by trying to, you know, enter into a dialogue with us. But we have to have it really clear that we're not called to dialogue with the devil. Like, that's not part of our vocation as a human person. So what happens next? Eve responds. So Eve consents to the dialogue. This is the second step. 
she tries to clarify what is misunderstanding. And we see Eve saying, We may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Um, it's interesting there, just as a bit of a side note really, how Eve is already starting to live in a lie and subjectivity because she adds there that God says that you shall not eat of the, in the tree of the midst, neither shall you touch it. And God never mentioned anything about not touching it. Like She just totally invented that. Um, but you see what happens when you start entering into this dialogue, living in the darkness. You stop seeing clearly and see how easy it is for the devil to trick us. Um, and so, but the sin, in a sense, is not in the dialogue in itself necessarily, but by entering into the dialogue, we're giving the devil the chance for the temptation to be formulated. And it's almost like, it's as if putting ourselves, I, probably some of you have heard that expression of don't put yourself in an occasion of sin. It's, it's kind of along those lines. So what do we mean by that? For example, if you know, if you struggle with chastity, and pretty much everyone does, you probably shouldn't hang out with your boyfriend or your girlfriend in a secluded room. You know, that's putting yourself in an occasion of sin. Or if you have a problem with gluttony, probably don't go to Max Brenner. I don't know. Um, <laughs> so we need to ask ourselves the question, what are the ways that I consent to dialogues with the devil? It might be things like, like I said, like, no, no, Mr. Satan, you're very confused. God didn't say it was a sin to spend time alone with my boyfriend. God only said, don't sleep with him. You know, you see what I mean? Like these little kind of conversations that we can have with ourselves. Or, you know, God didn't say it was a sin to be smart and to have all the answers and always have the last word. He only said it was a sin to be arrogant and proud, you know? Kind of the way that we can try to convince ourselves that what we're doing is, is all right. So the devil then, I guess we could say in step three, uses the fact that Eve responded um, to really then seduce her and propose the lie. He says, you will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. So he's really proposing this sort of act of disobedience now openly. You know, take of the fruit. You will not die. Your eyes will actually be opened. And the fruit, which is really a gift from God, you know, like we, he didn't have to even create us, he didn't have to give us any fruit at all, is suddenly now seen in Eve's eyes as a right, as something she deserves. Um, but more than anything, what is the devil doing? He's sowing doubt. He's suggesting that God is a liar, that God doesn't deserve to be trusted, ultimately that God doesn't love us, you know, that God doesn't care about us. Because if he cared, you know, why wouldn't he let you eat that fruit? And so we start to suddenly going from a situation where we actually trust in God and believe in him and know his love for us to saying, wait a second, maybe he doesn't care about me. Maybe he doesn't care about my happiness. Maybe it's all a lie. Maybe that fruit actually is my path to happiness. And so there, a desire starts to form within Eve, and we can see it in ourselves, to exclude God and his plans for our lives. So I want us to think for a second, how do we do that as well in our own lives? Maybe we can think of the times or the ways that we th start thinking that we don't really need God, that we're pretty good on our own, actually. Um, when we just 
yeah, ignore his plans, even though sometimes they might be very clear to us what he is asking of us, but we, we want to follow our own path. Um, and this ultimately, you know, is what the world is telling us to do. We live in what we call a very secularized world, right? What does that mean? A world that where God is, is not a part of daily life. God is actually sometimes quite aggressively excluded. And so we're being proposed these lies from the world all around us, telling us that God isn't relevant. And so in a way, the devil has already won a big battle because he doesn't even, he doesn't even have to tempt us anymore in a way. The world's doing it for us, you know? Like, it's coming from everywhere else. And, and we know that those lies abound. You know, the, the lies of, like, you need to work out your own happiness by your, your achievements, by being perfect, by getting as much money, by being the prettiest, by just having a lot of pleasure, only caring about yourself. Um, and we give in to those lies. And we start to think that God isn't that relevant, that God actually doesn't care about my happiness, that I can't really just trust in God. So we see Eve now on a very, very slippery slope. This lie has been proposed to her very, you know, directly now by the devil. And the forbidden fruit suddenly becomes something good, something good to eat. And there we see, again, the illusion, the deceit. How does she know that the fruit is good? How does she know it's good for food, good to eat? Like, she's never eaten it. And God actually told her not to eat it. So if really she should be, she should be thinking it's poisonous anyways, you know? Like, what, what is she thinking? Where is she getting that from? Um, and that's what happens. Reason is conquered by false illusion. And she's convinced of something that is not objectively true. This whole theme of lies and truth is important because we were created for truth. You know, I, the reading that we didn't end up reading at Mass, it was interesting because I was reading through it before, and um, it's really powerful. Maybe go look at it again at some other point today, but it says something like, we were anointed for truth and not for a lie, something along those lines. And I was thinking, wow, that's really relevant for this morning. But you, you were created for truth, but how many times we fall into illusions. We, we can talk about this being sort of like an existential lie. So what I mean is what our life is about, everything that we think will bring us happiness, um, you know, God has a certain plan for us, and that's the truth. But we start thinking, you know, that these other things are actually our path to happiness, and that's, that's an existential lie that we're living in. So what happens? Eve takes the fruit and she eats it. So that's, that's the act in itself, you know? That's, that's the sin in itself. I mean, we all are tempted. We all do give in to dialogues with the devil, and... We need to fight that, but we also have the will to be able to say no. And Eve didn't say no. She, didn't, she wasn't able to see that this was all a lie. Yeah, you might be confused, you might be in darkness, but you can choose. And Eve chose to disobey. We see how freedom, the most precious gift which we've been given as human beings, a gift we've been given so that we can love. No other creature can love but we can love only because we're free, because we can choose to will the good of the other. We can choose to give ourselves to the other, to sacrifice for the other. A dog can't do that. And in the same way, a dog can't sin. Only human beings can sin. So we can choose to use this great gift of our freedom for our own destruction, for our own unhappiness. 
And with this act, what do we see happening? Eve is creating a rupture between her and God, and a rupture with her true self. She no longer even understands who she is, what, she, what's, you know, what she's all about. So she's, she's convinced that she was missing out on something, but you know what, in the end, she ends up missing out on the only thing that's actually really important, which is her relationship with God. Um, so what are the lives, the lies, sorry, in, in our lives? You know, what voices do we listen to? Do we listen to God or do we listen to the world, to the devil? Um, what do you think will lead you to happiness? Again, going back to the prologue, later on in verse 10 of prologue of John, it says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world knew him not. He came to his own home, and his own people received him not. And you think, how can that be? How, how can it be that truth, the Lord, God himself, is here right in our midst, and, and we don't see him, we don't receive him? Well, every time we sin or enter into that dialogue or enter into that darkness, that's ultimately what we're doing. So I ask you again, why do you need Jesus? Why did Jesus come? Why did the word become flesh? The next step in the story is Eve giving some to her husband, it says. So we see here how sin is contagious. Evil spreads. There's social consequences. And this is very true. We know it from our own everyday experience of like, I guess the sort of peer pressure thing, you know, one person's in, you kind of pull someone else along. We see it in our world on a more global scale, what we can talk about the structures of sin in our world. How can it be that there's people starving to death and others, you know, living in waste? And that's something that the Pope is talking a lot about. Understandably, coming from South America, it's something very um, real for him. But we see how sin is contagious, evil spreads. So in summary, we see in this process of sin how the plan of God is presented as a problem, as a threat. Um, our reason is darkened. Our will is now inclined towards something that's supposedly good but is in fact evil. More than anything, what we see is how God is suddenly presented as the liar and the devil is presented as our friend. And it's interesting in the story, a lot of people talk about how this whole that you will be like God thing, that it says, um, uh, what, when you eat of it, you will be like God. And that in itself isn't a problem, because people say, oh, Eve ate the apple because she wanted to be like God. I mean, of course, in a certain sense, it's wrong if it's that idea of, like, I want to be the God of my own life and I want to reject God. But there's a truth to the fact that we're called to partake in the divine nature. We are called to greatness. We are called, that's what holiness is in the end. You know, it is Christ who lives in me, no longer I, it is Christ who lives in me. That's not really as much the problem, but it's that seeking um, to reach that without God, like outside of God's plan, and that refusal to actually listen to him and to listen to the fact that his paths are the best for us and will actually take us to participation in communion with him. So the heart and the nucleus of sin is really that disobedience and that pride. And so I hope you can see a little bit more clearly now, at least by the, at this point, how sin is 
Sin is not about breaking rules, but is ultimately about rupture, rejection, rebellion, mistrust, um, separation. So we can think about, yeah, we're on a journey. We're, we're pilgrims, and we're called to, to walk towards God. Like, that's our life journey. And, you know, we're yearning and hoping for that eternal communion with him. So with every option, we hope we're one step closer. Sin, and with sin, it's, it's walking backwards, you know, like walking one step further away. And, and I guess you could think of the image of, like, imagine we were sort of, like, strung to God by a piece of string. Um, you know, if you're walking towards him, it actually gets easier. You know, like the string, there's lots more, whatever, flexibility, it's loose. And if you're walking with your back away, it starts getting, you know, pulled on and pulled on and pulled on until a point where the string might, the string might break. And that might be a bit of an image to help us understand what happens, that process of, with every sin, what, what's happening in our lives. So what's the consequence for us? The consequence of sin in our lives so in our everyday lives, we follow that same sort of process that we just went through. And we experience, I would say, four ruptures, we can call it, um, that were the same ruptures that Eve experienced. First, the rupture with God, rupture with herself, rupture with others, and you could say rupture with all of creation. So I want to just quickly kind of go through all of those. Um, Firstly, that rupture with God, how sin ultimately leads us to this rupture with God. We were created in the image and likeness of God, but with sin, that likeness is is pretty much lost. I mean, sin is ultimately all about yourself, about selfishness, and, and God is love. So we're no longer like God when we're sinning. The image can never be lost, but it can be very darkened. You know, imagine... I don't know, being just covered up there. And so we move from this situation of being that image and likeness of God to to living in a a land of almost unlikeness, you know, that land of darkness and confusion. We go from being friends with God to to fearing him and and hiding from him. And that's how the, the narrative continues. After they, you know, they open their eyes and they realize they're naked, It goes on, uh, verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. How sad, you know, that they felt they had to hide from God. And yet, that's what happens when we sin. We feel like, think of yourselves how many times in your own ways, you may have felt like, I don't really want to face God. And in your own way, you're also, you kind of try to hide from Him. And it's funny because the weaker and weaker we feel, sometimes the more and more we do that, which is like, really sad, because what we need in those moments is to turn to him. Um, And so we we go from being in communion and encounter with God to really living in loneliness and distance from God. And I think we experience this rupture with God in different ways, but we might say that 
no, we can no longer hear him, like we don't understand him. And if any of you have ever sort of maybe discerning something big in your life, you, you understand what that means when it's like you just can't hear God anymore. Things just are not clear. That's what happens because of sin as well. Um, we don't put him first in our lives anymore. We stop praying. We start probably functioning in many ways like what I might call a functional agnostic. So agnostic, someone who kind of thinks that you can't really know if God exists or not. Many times we actually live like that in our daily lives. Um, we go on with our life, and it's like, oh, God might exist, he might not exist, but you know what, it doesn't matter. I don't ask him about you know, the decisions I need to make in my life. I don't, I don't turn to him in my daily life. There's that rupture between my faith and my everyday life. And that's a consequence of sin. What does this rupture with myself look like? Um, this is something, again, that we all have experienced. Experience. We know it, that feeling of, of unworthiness, of not really knowing who we are, um, of, of insecurity. You know, that says here that they were afraid, they knew they were naked. Think of that experience of, of being, yeah, naked, of an insecurity, of vulnerability. Um, and we try to hide again, like they do. And, and we start to build up false securities. We look for empty substitutes because we want to, we don't like, human person does not like to feel insecure. We want to have things under control. So if we do feel insecure, we're, we should turn to God, who is our security. But when we've fallen into sin and when we're in this sort of whole tumult of it, we, we tend to, to turn to substitutes instead. And specifically, we can talk about the substitutes of, of power, pleasure, and possession. And the church will refer to these as what's called the concupiscences. So um, that's that we all have a tendency towards these. It's the wound that we've inherited because of original sin. And power, how do we seek for power? How do we seek for that? Um, it's any time and, and every way that we want to be in control. In control of the situation, in control of our lives, when we want people to do things the way that we want them to be done, and when we want people to think that we're great, um, you know, that, that competitive person wanting to be the best in everything, these ultimately are all ways of, of seeking after power. We seek after pleasure, wanting to feel good about ourselves and to feel good. And um, whether it might be with chastity or just with sleep or just comforts in general, and wanting to have fun all the time, not wanting to be uncomfortable, um, you know, complaining a lot that it's hot, it's cold, I'm tired, all those sorts of things. Uh, when we put our desires before loving others. And possessions. When I want to have all the things that I like, I want the newest iPhone and, and everything, and the clothes and the sports gear. Uh, we can be really possessive about our time, too, wanting to do things in our time, in our ways. Uh, obviously, with money, wanting to have a lot of money so that we can have the things that we want. We can also be possessive in our relationships. So we can see how this rupture um, affects us, how we, we seek for false securities. You might say that sometimes we start to build up masks almost, because uh, we don't really know who we are anymore, because we're not in relationship with God. We, we think that we need to, to build our own identity. So it might be, I mean, this is really obvious in in sort of high school age thing, like when it's like, oh, I'm, I'm the sporty one, or I'm the cool one, or I'm the smart one. 
and sometimes we laugh at that when we look at, especially, you know, those movies, especially the American movies and things about, about that time of your life. But when you think about it, even as adults, we sort of still live like that sometimes. We still seek after this image. Because we're not really secure in who we are, we, we seek to, to fulfill something else. And oftentimes it's expectations of other people. And this all has root in, in sin because we're not in right relationship with God, therefore we don't understand who we are. So the other manifestations of the rupture with myself, um, there's supposed to be a hierarchy, right, of our spirit over our mind and our body. We're a unity, but the spirit is, in a sense, supposed to rule us. But because of sin, suddenly our body starts to try to rule us. You know, whether it's I want to eat what I want to eat whenever I want, and I don't care about prayer because I'm tired. We can see this. Um, Again, those interior conflicts and frustrations. And it's because ultimately it's as if we lost our north. So we kind of just don't really get what life is all about anymore. What's the meaning of the life and what's my purpose here? We have the rupture with our brothers and sisters, the third rupture. And I think this is quite obvious. We see here Eve offering uh, the fruits to Adam and then everything that comes after that. Our communion with God is the foundation of all of our other relationships. And I know, I'm sure you've experienced that, even in the difficulty sometimes it can be to have a really strong friendship with someone who's not a believer. Like, that's hard, and that's hard for a reason. Because God has to be the center of our relationships. Um, So, with sin, we see that relationships begin to be difficult. We have difficulty in trusting in others. And a lot of times, individualism, selfishness rules. Finally, that rupture with creation. Um, We were called to be co-creators, to have dominion over creation, but now it becomes a burden to us and subject to our abuse. So you see here in the story how they take the fig leaves and they sew them on, and it's like, well, the fig fig leaves were not meant for that purpose, but because of sin, they had to be used that way. You could kind of like, you know, see that analogy in in our world today too, that we are called to, to care for for creation and not to just use it and abuse it. And so this is a, this is a very real uh, rupture as well. So I guess as a sort of way of a conclusion, we can see how sin ultimately cuts ourselves off from God. We're left feeling empty, feeling naked. And I want to ask you again, do you relate with that experience? It's easy to want to justify ourselves out of sin. And it's true that the devil tempts us and the world tempts us. But like I touched on before, ultimately, you're free. And you're the one who chooses to sin. But we need to face this situation because it's only then that we can begin to understand the deep longing in our hearts for for peace, for reconciliation. We all have a deep, deep longing for reconciliation. And, and we'll only understand that if we, we face the fact that sometimes we are actually in an experience of rupture. So again, why did Jesus come? He came for that reason. He came to save us from that situation of nakedness, from that situation of rupture came to save us from sin. 
We don't need to look for empty substitutes. Christ has come. Isaiah says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shined. Christ has already come. He's broken through the, that great abyss between earth and heaven. So I really, I guess, want to exhort all of you, especially as we're, you're sort of at the beginning of, of the mission school, to, to let that light of Christ shine in your lives. Let it shine in the darkest corners of your heart that really need light. And pray to the Lord. Pray today, pray now, that his light might tr- penetrate. And, and I don't know, I, I guess what better way than through the sacraments? They're sacraments of light and of truth. You know, really ask the Lord in Mass to be enlightened in what ways you need to transform your heart to become more like Him. And if you don't know the darkness that you're living in, if it's not very clear to you what ways you need Him in your life, ask for the guidance, ask the sisters, talk to the priests, approach the sacrament of reconciliation, even if you're not 100% sure of what it is that you need to be uh, forgiven for. The priest is there to guide you through that. And we need to remember that our sin, each of you, our, our sin has a concrete face. We all have our own, I guess, rupture, you could say. So, so we do need to face that. So I ask you to be brave, to go deep, and, and to ask the difficult questions, to, to make that examination of conscience, as we say, trusting that the victory has already been won. You're doing it with Christ. You're doing it holding his hand. So there's nothing to be afraid of. I mean, it's not easy, but we need to remember the promises of the Lord. At that same moment of original sin, of the first rupture, we also have the first promise of a reconciler. God has never forgive, uh, never abandoned us. We call it the Proto-Evangelium. It's Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And in that, we see that image, really, of of Mary stomping on the serpent, you know, of that moment of the incarnation, Christ, just like I said, breaking through, the word becoming flesh in her womb. In Mary's womb, our reconciliation begins. And that promise is there in Genesis. The moment, just at the moment when they've, they've sinned, they've turned their back on God, God gives us that promise. And he's, he's here today, you know, I guess repeating that same promise to you. Um, we have hope precisely because the word became flesh and opened up that path of healing and reconciliation. So, Thank God. Thank God for Christmas, right? Thank God for the incarnation. And the darkness will never be overcome. Later, I just want to finish with the, another quote from the prologue, John 1, 5. It says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And darkness will never overcome the light because the light is Christ. And he reigns forever victorious. So... That I would like to finish. Thanks. God bless. That was Eileen Lane with Why Did Jesus Come? 
For more from the Immaculata Mission School, visit cradio.org.au.